If you've ever felt isolated, confused, or overwhelmed by midlife changes, you're not alone. Welcome to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. I'm so happy you're here. I'm the author of Me, Myself, and I, a midlife coach and public speaker. My mission is to create deeper conversations with dynamic people from all walks of life about how midlife's completely shifted who they thought they were and ultimately how they've come to see themselves again. When it comes to navigating the funky junk of midlife identity loss and the unnamed grief that goes along with it, it's time for straight talk. Get ready for real stories, real connection, and real hope accompanied by a little bit of humor and a whole lot of love. You're now part of Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. So welcome to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. My guest today is Robert Romanus, who is an American film, television actor, and musician. And of course, most of us know him as the ticket scalper Mike Damone in 1982 comedy Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And Natalie Green's boyfriend, Snake, on the Facts of Life. Robert originally came to Los Angeles to become a singer with the possibility of having a band, which we're definitely going to talk about that. He became a singing busboy at a restaurant for a little while and later quit to pursue another job. When he came back for a visit and play a few songs at his old job, he met Steve Feldman, who was working as a current singing busboy. The two ended up hitting it off, and they created their own group with the name Papa's Kitchen, which is still going today. (laughs) So, Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, so Romanus starred in the 1983 series The Best of Times as Pete Falcone. And he also starred in the 1985 film Bad Medicine. One of the things I didn't know is that you had starred in soap operas such as Days of Our Lives and The Young and the Restless. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So I definitely want to talk about the soap opera world. And I knew about the many guest appearances like on Chips and 21 Jump Street, Alien, MacGyver, and even Will and Grace. And you directed a film, the drama called Grapefruit Moon. So you've had a very long and expansive career. And so the reason why I wanted you on as a guest was because I felt like you have done so many different things and the icon role of Damone in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. So many actors I know do these things that they don't even know that they're going to change their lives forever. So that's what I was interested in talking about. And we will start at the beginning how's that wherever that and wherever it takes us is where we go sure where's the beginning <laughs> well i could ask you that where is the beginning i know right. you told the story on kevin rankin's all access live show about being in florida and how you ended up in la and how your acting career began so some yeah. abbreviated version of that would be great to start with because that was such an interesting story That was right around, I was in my second year of college at Xavier University in Cincinnati. And I was struggling, struggling with classes, struggling. I mean, I was not a great student. My drive was to go out and live life and not sit in a classroom. So 
I quit school in my second year and I hopped on a bus and I went down to Fort Lauderdale and I thought, well, I'll get a job here. All my friends will come down and spring break and we'll all party. And, and that didn't go well. <laughs> the best laid a, plans. <laughs> the best laid plans. And I, I've always been sort of the guy who have always just sort of jumped into life. Jumped into things, both feet, not really thinking about where it's going to take me, but just sort of going for it. And that's what I did. And I ended up with very little money and I got ripped off in Florida. I was sitting out in a, on a bus stop. I told Kevin this. I was sitting out at a, at a, a bus stop in front of Howard Johnson's because when I was in Florida, I would sleep on the beach early in the morning, four o'clock in the morning. I'd go sleep on the beach and wake up when the sun was up. and go look for a job. Well, one night I was sitting on this bench in front of Howard Johnson's about two o'clock and a carload of kids came by and doused me with water balloons. Little bastards. Oh my God. Oh, those little (laughs) bastards. You know, to make a, a, to make a long story short, I was soaked. I went to the bus station where I had all my clothes in a locker. Right. And, uh, as I was pulled in the bus station, walked in because I was, I know I didn't have a car. They were hanging up a sign that said travel anywhere in the United States for $76 because it was the bicentennial 1976. And I had like $80. So I bought a ticket and I said, I'm going to California. That's very patriotic of you. (laughs) Well, I I thought, you know, that's the spirit, 76. (laughs) The red, white, and do. uh, And I did. Uh I bought that ticket and I headed to Los Angeles. I had a brother who was living out here. He was in the middle of a divorce with his uh, with his ex-wife now. And so I uh, lived in her garage. I set up a bed in her garage and I cut a little hole in the door and put a little screen there and got a job at Shakey's Pizza. I know Shakey's well. I do. I lived right around the corner. I was on Olympic in Fairfax. That's the one I worked at. Oh, my God, really? Yeah, That's yeah. So because wild. I lived, I lived near Poinsettia Park. Right. So I would take the bus straight down Fairfax so to Olympic, mm. and at that Shakey's, I'd be there like five o'clock in the morning, and I would roll out all the dough for the day, roll it out, and I would pile them up, and that was that was my job. And uh, I just kept thinking, music is my thing. It's what I really like. Uh, I ended up getting a job as a singing uh, bus boy as you said. The problem was I'm terribly shy. You know, it was very hard for me to get up in front of people and sing a song, but I knew one song. And so I would get up and sing it. And that was called The Heart of Saturday Night by Tom Waits. Because I was so terrified, I decided I would take an acting class. In this acting class that I discovered I could be anything I want to be on stage. Yep. And, and that to me was like the holy grail. You know what I mean? I could, all these things I felt and thought and things I would like to have said, I, you know, always too shy. Now I have this great excuse to do all of it. And to me, it was so freeing. So I pursued that. It's all serendipity, right? Every moment of our lives is serendipity. And, And you had talked about with Kevin on his show about going to Schwab's. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you remember Schwab's? Of course. I'm an L.A. girl oh, through and through. Yeah. 
there's so much about LA that I think about that you probably relate to May Company on oh, in sure. Fairfax across like the street from Orbex. Boy, they tear all that stuff down. You know, it's like Hollywood is, is very much like a movie set. You know, you drive down the street one day and everything's changed. Yeah. And literally in, in like a day or two, like these these buildings are gone and this new building is here. And it's like like a movie set. It just kind of keeps changing, you know. Yeah. It feels like even though I grew up in L.A., I go back now and it feels like an L.A. I don't really recognize. And, and there was so much about L.A. and not to lament about how everything changes. I don't want to sound like the old man on the lawn yelling at the clouds, but <laughs> it just feels there's something very different about the feel of LA. So how did you perceive LA as a kid, you know, growing up on the East Coast, having traveled to Florida? What was it like to be in LA? Were you sucked in by the sort of veneer of it or what was it? You know, I grew up uh, I grew up in Connecticut on the East Coast. And all I ever thought about was the Beach Boys, girls in bikinis and the sun and the surf and the sand and the cars. And that to me was California. And me and my friends, we'd, you know, we'd hang out at the beach and we put our speakers on the rocks and we'd play the Beach Boys all day long. And so it was really, uh, I had this really clear image of what I thought Southern California was. First time I ever came was in 1967. I came out with my mother to visit my brother. And that's when the Sunset Strip was like unbelievable with, you know, motorcycles lined up all the way down, uh, you know, all of the body shop for, uh, you know, a hundred yards of motorcycles and you remember the song Magic Bus by The Who? Oh, yeah. There'd be a magic bus that drove up and down Sunset. It was painted all psychedelic <laughs> and it was free. <laughs> and you could jump on it. You could jump on it up by like uh, where the Hamburger Hamlet was. Right. Uh, and the rainbow. And you could ride it all the way down to like Highland. Perfect. For free. Just jump on it. And it was just like crazy world out here compared to the conservative place I grew up in, you know. So it lived up to the hype. Oh, it sure did. Excellent. Oh, absolutely. Cool. Movie stars walking around and, you know, I mean, it's, it's like, it's like not real. You know what I mean? Yeah, I it's know exactly real. what you mean. And in some ways there's an allure to that. And in some ways there's an intimidation to that. Oh, uh, absolutely. I've always been intimidated by it. I got starstruck very easy. Who was the first movie star you saw that was like, you were nervous? When I came out in 1967, <laughs> I, I ran into Barbara Feldon at the Old World on Sunset. Barbara Feldon was Get Smart. Mm -hmm. Just this beautiful girl. I was like 12 years old. I had my little camera and I was shaking <laughs> She signed my autograph book. Uh, and then I ran into the three girls from Petticoat Junction. And I was so nervous, I dropped my <laughs> camera and broke it. But I had all their, I got all their autographs. It, it doesn't even have to be a star, really. You know, uh, I, I'm just kind of in awe of anybody who has success in this business. It's a very tough business, you know. So anybody... Even the, the girl on the uh, insurance commercial. You know, if the phone commercial's done right, I'll cry and I'll be like, oh my God, that's, <laughs> you know. Is there anything you wouldn't do? And I want to talk about the acting, you know, I, I definitely want to dig into that, but just 
anecdotally, is there any type of project or Hollywood calling that you would say no to? Pornography? I would never do pornography. <laughs> okay, that's one example, yes. question. <laughs> I mean, is there any low that you wouldn't stoop down to because you're like, no, I just don't want to be known as that guy? It depends, you know. It depends on what it is. I mean, I can't, I, I've, I've done a whole show in a milk carton. You know, I did a whole Hooperman with uh, John Ritter. The whole show, I was in a milk cart, and you didn't even know who I was till the very last scene. If you, if I would do that, yeah, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I've deflowered Mindy Cohen on Facts of Life. I've, you know, I don't know. Uh, I guess, I guess, gratuitous sex does not appeal to me, right? You know, gratuitous violence, yeah. I agree. You know, it's just such a weird business, I guess, you know, the things that you do and in any business, it's not just acting. I could say there's probably any business I can pick out where there's a threshold. If you're a receptionist, do you actually go and get the coffee? If the boss asks, is that part of it? Like, do you, you know, to me, it could translate into any level of job for my husband, for example, he was a bus boy and the baby was making a mess over everything and the parents just stood by and watched and then they left and then he's supposed to shovel the shit that's left under the table like that's when he quit (laughs) oh well there's your threshold you know i mean there are a lot of things i've said no to just didn't feel right or i wasn't connected to it in truth uh, i see i see my career as a like an album Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and everything i do are like cuts on the album so there are a lot of things i've done that are horrible. You know what I mean? They're just horrible projects. The people involved weren't very talented, but you know. And that's okay uh, too, right? I mean, that's part of it. I love how you look at that because not everything is a masterpiece. Certain things get us from point A to point B. Some things we just have to learn and we wouldn't have learned those things had we not been there. That's true. And not not everybody has the option of picking the greatest material. Right. You know what I mean? And some of us have kids and bills to pay and, totally. and lives to live. So, you know, when someone offers me a nice chunk of money, even if it's not the best project that I could find, you know, I look at it like this. I say, OK, that's going to go into the coffers and it's going to go into my pension. Mm-hmm. And you know what I mean? It all adds up is how I see it. So unless you want me to you know, you're asking me to do something really freaky. Uh, There's a good chance I might say yes to your project, you know. And I would also say conversely, not everybody gets a chance to do the role of a lifetime that is stands out that in everybody's mind, they know that role, they know that character, they can recite those lines that it is ingrained and burned into the DNA of an entire generation. Like those roles not everybody gets that. In fact, only a few people do. That was amazing. How fortunate am I? Because you're absolutely right. Not a lot of people get those roles. I, I know people who have listed this long of credits on Broadway and are wonderful actors. And I know so many talented people. I know people who've done a hundred films, but nothing, you know, who, who knew? I didn't know. Yeah. And did you not know at the time? I mean, that and we're getting to this point a little bit sooner than I wanted to, but here we are. And I'm going to geek out on this for maybe a few minutes and then we're going to move on because there are other things, but it's impossible not to geek out on it because how relevant and deep and thoughtful and honest 
that was that whole movie, that whole time frame, that whole character, the way it was written uh, was just so, I want to say ahead of its time, but really it was just a snapshot in time that became a, a, a picture that we all know. Anybody over 40, at least, I would say, like, I, I don't know what the age, and even younger, because like I watched it with my son six months ago, you know, I had to show him, I had to indoctrinate him. He's going to be 16. I'm like, dude, you're going to oh, sit boy. and watch this movie with me. So it's See, something. This is, this is what not to do. <laughs> no, this is like, I, I told him, I said, this is part of my childhood and anybody, uh, you know, this is just a rite of passage. You had mentioned when you were doing it, who you said who knew kind of, in, but did you know, did anybody there at that time working on that film know exactly how huge and big and memorable it would be? No, nobody knew. I mean, mostly they were first time actors, except for Sean. Sean and Phoebe had worked before. Amy, it was her first film she directed. It was Cameron Crowe's first screenplay. You know, now you know the story behind the screenplay, right? I know a little bit, but I, you, please. Okay. Well, Cameron Crowe, when he was 22 years old, I think, went back to high school in San Diego and enrolled as a senior. And he spent the year hanging out with all these kids. And that's where the book comes from. Uh, he, you know, he'd be like sitting with them having pizza after school. He didn't tell anybody what he was doing. They just thought he was another kid enrolled in school. And he'd say, you know, we'd be sitting down having pizza after school. And someone would say something, you know, this guy would say, you know, what you need is my five point plan. <laughs> and then you go into it and Cameron says, I'd run in the bathroom, I'd write it down on a napkin. I think that's why it resonates, because it really comes out of the mouth of these these teenagers. The thing about it is all the themes that Fast Times touches on are relatable in any generation. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And so it's very universal. At, at, at any age, you know, you can look at it and say, or in any decade, you could look at it and say, well, here's a kid trying to fix up his car and he works and, <laughs> you know, that's his thing. And then there's the, the tough guy, you know, who's scalping tickets or whatever and always bragging and... You know, so there's somebody, these are these are basic sort of themes in life. And I think the reason that it resonates is because it's true. Most of it is true, out of the mouth of babes. Did you relate and, to the character that you when you got the script and you were looking at it? And and I don't want to gloss over how you actually got the role either, because I want to talk about that, but did you relate to the character? Was he somebody you knew? A lot of him, some of him. That's how I always start with any character, even a, a serial killer. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to look at that character and say, what, what do we have in common? Yeah. And I had some things in common with Mike Damone, you know. I, I used to sit around and and play cards and poker and stuff when I was a kid. And, you know, it was all about a scam here. Or not really a scam, but that part I could relate to. The shyness around girls I absolutely could relate to. That whole thing in the, in the uh, pool house could absolutely relate to. That was such a powerful scene. I think that was probably the, one of the deepest, most pivotal scenes in the movie, just like as a as a girl you know i related you know that and the dugout scene i think where you know she's just staring up at the ceiling mm -hmm. and i think that uh, you have to give amy heckling all the credit in the world for that because she 
really has those, she really captures that sensibility of what it's like to be a, a, a young girl or a woman going through that. You know, she, she just has, I mean, she did Clueless. She's really got her finger on the pulse of that experience, I think. So that was what her, her thesis film at the NYU was a coming of age film. Mm-hmm. which I believe is what got her fast times. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yes, I, uh, there were some things I could relate to some things I couldn't relate to really, you know, uh, I would never fuck over a friend. Right. I would never, I would never do that, you know, and uh, I probably would, would have stepped up. Right. And I got some girl pregnant, you know, I'm sure I would have. So on the five, point plan when they say you're gonna talk to Debbie Harry (laughs) did you know that was going to be part of it because I think to me that was so funny just funny yeah it was written that was written the the cardboard cutout in front of uh, a licorice pizza there (laughs) and uh, I actually asked them if I could take the cardboard cutout home with me because I wanted to practice that and uh they wouldn't let me. <laughs> so if you had to have a sixth point of the five point plan, what would it be? A sixth point? Mm-hmm. Could it be after the fact? <laughs> <laughs> totally. Okay. After the fact, the sixth point would be, don't listen to me. <laughs> yeah. Whatever I'm saying, don't take my advice. If you get a girl, no. don't listen to me. After Led Zeppelin. I'm, I'm just talking. Yeah, that's it. I'm just that's talking. I'm the audition when you didn't even really know you got it, you had to keep going back. Uh, you had mentioned right. seven times. Yeah, I believe it was like seven weeks. Wow. Uh, yeah, the very first time I went in, it was the casting agent, Don Phillips, and it was Amy Heckerling, the director. And I read a scene or two. When I was done, Amy Heckerling looked at me. She said, don't cut your hair. I said, oh, wow, I got a shot here. So, but then I didn't hear anything for a week. Probably a long, stressful week. Well, you know, yeah, because you're thinking, hey, I got a good shot, but then you don't hear anything. And so you're thinking, all right, well, I didn't get it. And then I get a call. They want to see you again. So I go in. I read a couple more scenes. Thank you very much. You know, don't cut your hair. (laughs) And uh, so good. I got a good shot, but then I don't hear for another week. And I'm starting to get, you know, starting to be like an emo- emotional roller coaster. You know what I mean? Yeah. Get very up. Hey, I might have a shot in the movie, you know, and then I didn't get it, you know. Yeah. This went on literally for seven weeks. Every week they would call me back. And finally, in the end, they had, uh, I- I'd gone to makeup and wardrobe. I had uh, improvised. I had read every scene for them. At the end of that meeting, I I really looked at them and said, you know, I like the part. I think I do a really good job. Right. But I'm not coming back again. You know, I'm just not. Because most of the night had enough. It's like, fuck it. I don't even want it if you're going to make me go through this, you know. And right there, the producer said, well, welcome aboard. And, uh, And later down the road, I found out from Amy that the producer thought that I looked too old. How old were you at that time? I was 26. And that was his struggle. Mm-hmm. Was that he thought I looked too old. 
and she basically fought for me and uh and there you have it it didn't seem to bother anybody yeah you don't you definitely don't look 26 nobody in the film is a teenager <laughs> you know what i mean it's like the sweat hogs on welcome back Carter. Well, exactly they're all, <laughs> they're all in their 20s <laughs> they were yeah so uh yeah it was very emotional and uh but you know the bigger the carrot harder the uh, uh, the harder the uh struggle you know what i mean what was the first time you saw the movie all the way through what how how that must have been weird and amazing very weird to see your face 40 feet big on the yeah. screen i saw it in westwood with amy hackerling and a few members of the cast a couple of other people involved in the film and the theater was packed and it was opening night and the crowd went nuts they just loved it and they loved everything and they got every joke and they booed when the rat didn't sleep with Stacy and they, you know, they just <laughs> got everything. And we just all looked at each other and thought, oh, my God, how fabulous is this? And then it went on like that for weeks. Nobody would have thought that, really. I mean, I think that most of us thought, you know, we're looking at another summer movie Mm-hmm. maybe like a Porky's or something, and it's going to come out and it's going to do a few weeks business and go away. And here we are almost 40 years later and still talking about it. And it's it's in the Library of Congress as a national treasure. And it's like, you know, you're right. There are very few of these opportunities, mm-hmm. you know. Were you proud of it when you watched it the whole way through? I mean, aside from the crowd reaction, were you... Was it a moment in your own life personally where you were proud of something you had done? Oh, yeah, sure. (laughs) Yeah, because like I say, you know, anybody gets anywhere in this business, you got to give them kudos, man. This is a tough business. So to be starring in a movie from a studio, Universal Studios, having a starring role, having it be a success was a little overwhelming. Yeah, I was just going to ask you that emotionally. So if you've gone from being scrappy and poor and having $4 left over after a bus ticket to having a job and then, hey, you're a movie star, what what does that do? And you're relatively young. So what does that do to your sense of yourself and and looking in the in the scope of everything and the comparison of such a big world of Hollywood? Like I say, I, I always I always felt like it was there. Hollywood was there mm-hmm. and I'm here. Mm-hmm. And that's how I always see it. And I, I felt that way, even though I was in the middle of it, mm. you know, I was on every A-list on every studio mm-hmm. and I always felt like it was over there and I'm over here because I'm just this kid from Connecticut, mm-hmm. you know, who, who happened along this, you know, it was a, it was a bit of a, it was a good thing I had my family because my family helped to kind of gr- keep me grounded, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I, I struggled over a lot. I struggled over a lot of a lot of years about it all. You know, here these guys go off and they're all doing movies and this and that. And, you know, I'm I'm like a journeyman. I do a guest star here. I do a soap opera there. And, you know, and I struggle in that way. You know, what's why am I there? Blah, blah, blah. And, and that's when I, when I came to the conclusion that my life is an album. Right. It's not a series of hits. It's not, uh, you know, I'm not the Beatles. I am, uh, I am Van Morrison. You know what I mean? And I have songs and they're all different and they're, they make up this album of mine. 
And when I look back on it like that, I say, well, you've, you've had a pretty extraordinary life, Bob, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, I have friends who have been in, who were actors who have had some success and the roller coaster of expectations that comes as perceived external success, uh, the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the you're in, you're out, you're off, you're on. You're only as good as your last one. Yeah, and I understand. So I feel like the identity thing, no matter, again, going back to what we're talking about, it could be with any job. Anytime you've had any job with any success or were known for any one thing and you try to do something different, then it it becomes what the world wants it to be and less about what you know you need to do to transition into the next chapter of your life. And I think the grace that we give ourselves is probably going to be more important than any of the grace that anybody outside of us is going to ever give us for what, because it's always going to be their projection. It's always going to be what you want. You know, that's, I think the biggest lesson I have learned in all of this is that it's like a, it's like a lion in the zoo, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's king of the jungle, he's the king of the jungle, you know, and he's in this zoo and everybody comes by and they look at him and they're like, look at the lion. He's so beautiful. He's so majestic. He's the king of the jungle and the lion's soaking it all in, you know, then one day they stop coming by right. and the lion's like, well, what's wrong with me? Why aren't people coming by? Why aren't they telling me how great I am. To me, that what I realize is I'm like putting my self-esteem in what other people are thinking about me. And that was a big lesson for me to learn that my worth is not in your eyes, but in my own eyes. And that was my lesson through all of, all of that. Why aren't I working and all of that, you know? That's huge. The lesson for me is, yes. The lesson is, you know, I know my own worth. I don't need you to tell me what it is. At what stage did that start to maybe become more of a possibility for yourself? At what point did you sort of give up the idea of adhering to expectations? Uh, That's because that's what my book, I, I talk a lot about that, the expectations, midlife whenever that is between 40 and 60, whatever we've done, wherever we've been. Well, you nailed it. Right around 50. It was right around, right in my 40s, 45, I think I started teaching a little Mm -hmm. bit. And then the acting wasn't so important to me at the time. And that's when I started to see my own worth. So yeah, it was in my midlife when I had started to make a change and started to accept the fact that, okay, maybe starring in movies for the rest of my life is not my is not my lot and so I can give that up in the meantime I'm still working but I don't have that pressure of why aren't I doing this what's wrong with me you know so I understand that so well I mean that is the basis of my book it's called me my selfie and I EYE and the me is the person yeah. that you know yourself to be in the world the selfie is the person that you have to project in the world for whatever reason, and social media. And then the I is this mid-lifetime when you start to see who you are. And the subtitle is, it's a, a midlife conversation about lost identity, grief, and seeing who you are. So when you describe that 
sort of acceptance and allowance that, hey, maybe this isn't where I'm going to be. There is a there is a time when there's a, a whole lot of sadness and a whole lot of confusion and a whole letting go, uh, because that is a part of ourselves that dies in some way, the, the vision of ourselves that dies. And it's a very lonely, weird, disassociating time because we don't name it as grief. We don't treat it as grief. We don't understand it as grief. And then we're left sort of in this hinterland of not there and not here. And it can be a very fertile time, but it's a very strange time. So I love how you went back to school because I did the same thing. And I was 48 when I went back to school, but that you went back to school and you started to become and you became a teacher. So tell me about that time, because that is something I'm so interested in. Well, that was all motivated by my divorce. I had three young kids. I had twins that were six, and I had a four-year-old. I was getting divorced. You know, I really didn't want to, I wanted to disrupt their life as little as possible. That was my goal. So I, I said, I don't want to do a week here, a week there, a weekend here. You know, I said, that's your house. We, you know, this is our house where we have lived for so many years. You guys are staying here. I got an apartment up the street. They would come hang out with me, you know, maybe once or twice a week. And I took a job at their school. And in doing that, I could see them all the time. I was in their lives all the time. And that was really important to me. At that point, I, I got a job in preschool. They were in elementary school, and I got a job in the preschool. And I taught in the preschool, which was really some of the most interesting teaching I've ever done. It's so fascinating, these little kids. I mean, showing them how to open a juice box is an epiphany. You know what I mean? That they've cha- You've changed their life. That's so great. If you can show them how to catch a ball, it changes their whole world. And in preschools, you don't find men. You find only women, mostly women. And there's the male energy you know, I'll get on the rug and I'll make little roads and we'll have, you know, and, and it will be a whole other kind of energy that these kids now can pick up on. So that was fascinating. And then I got offered a job at a school. I was still teaching the preschool, but, and I started to go back to, to college myself to get child development degree. How old were you at that point? Oh, maybe 45. Right, that's okay. about the time. I was a horrible student all my life. All of a mm-hmm. sudden, I'm making the dean's list. That's so awesome. Yeah. So um, at that time, I got offered it because I had no money. I had no job, really. Or, and teaching doesn't pay anything, you know. So I took a mm-hmm. job at this other school. It was a school for kids with behavioral problems who'd been thrown out of the L.A. school system for criminal acts or whatever. They're gang members. And they had these like four trailers behind this old body shop deep in the valley. And it was surrounded by fencing. And this was their school. The head of the school asked me if I would come and do like an after school program where I would teach acting or whatever. And I said, sure. So I did that. My first experience, okay, my very first day going to teach at the school I, uh, I ring the bell, they open the gate, I walk in, I ask the girl behind the desk, uh, 
uh, where's uh, Principal Thomas or whatever? Oh, he's out back, you know, just walk down that path. So I walk around the path, I come around the back. There's a crowd of kids all in a big circle and two kids in the middle and they're pummeling each other. And everybody's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And I, <laughs> and I see this guy, he's just standing near the door and I walk over to him, I say, I'm looking for the principal, have you seen him? He points to the middle of the circle. There's the principal. He's refereeing a fist fight between two kids. And that's my ex- first day there. That's heartbreaking. It was scary, is what yeah. it was. So um, that too. I had a little classroom of kids, and they were horrible. They would tell me to go fuck myself. You know, I'd say, "Well, let's do something today." You know, fuck you. <laughs> you know, they'd be throwing paper at me and shit, and. Mm. Uh, so after a few weeks of this, I went to the, I was going to go to the principal and say, you know, look, it's just not working out. You're wasting your money and I'm wasting my time. But uh, a friend of mine said, why don't you bring a camera to class? And so I, I did. I brought a little video camera and I set it on my desk. And as they walked in, one by one, they'd see the video camera and they're like, hey, man, you want to make a movie? I could be a big star. And next thing I know, all these kids were, were making movies. Were, I'm not censoring them. Whatever movie you want to make, let's make it. I guide them a little bit, you know. So we started making movies. And it was a great program because if you didn't want to be in front of the camera, I'll show you how to work the camera. So now you're going to film it, you know, and you're going to help with the costumes and you're going to help with the sets. And these are going to be our actors. And this is our story. And we did that for a whole year. And we had some pretty fabulous little films. And then they closed the school down because in in California, you get paid. They used to pay the school per student. And then they changed it to paying the school per attendance. And these kids don't show up for school. These kids, you know, they... Crack over for a myriad of reasons. Exactly. They're in the arcade, they're drunk or whatever. So they, they ran out of funding, they closed the school. But I took the program to the elementary school and I started to make movies with the elementary school kids. And that was fabulous. That's where my kids were at school. And uh, we would make movies like, I, I do it just like in a, in a writer's room. You know, I take half the class, 10 kids, 10 second graders, And we'd sit in a circle and I'd say, okay, let's break a story. What are we going to make a movie about? Aliens chasing gum chewers. That's a great idea. How do we do that? Well, there's this thing in the playground. That's our spaceship. I love it. Next thing you know, we're making movie. And then at the end of the semester, I would make everybody popcorn. And we would sit down and watch all the movies that we made. And I'd make a DVD for everybody, you know. And it was, uh, it was a great program because it was all-inclusive. Mm-hmm. Like I say, if you are too shy to be in front of the camera, well, come here. I'm going to show you how we're going we're gonna to shoot this. And you know that. You totally know that. I mean, that's where you can bring your past experience in exactly. and be authentic. Exactly. And, and so everybody gets a chance to participate. Everybody feels like they're part of the group. And uh, so that was a fabulous program. And I did that for the next three or four years until my kids left to go to another school. And that's when I stopped. And I said, well, I think I'm going to get back into my acting. 
My kids are now in high school, junior high school. They're used to the whole divorce thing. Yeah. They're, you know, and then when they're in middle school and high school, it's not like, it's not like when they're in grade school and you can go and show up every morning and hang <laughs> out with all dad. the moms. And, yeah. Talk to all the teachers and, you know, that was fun. And then, you know, they get into junior high and high school and you basically drop them off and go on your way. So, so I, I needed to put in that time, maybe because, uh, you know, my father died when I was very young. You know, I wanted them to, I just wanted to be in their life. So I think through, and I always thought that, you know, these really formative years, I mean, it really, it's up to like five or six, but, you know, up until seven, eight, nine, ten. 10, if you're in their life and you're modeling good behavior and, you know, so that's how that all came about. It's so amazing. Teaching to me is one of the most noblest, unregarded, underpaid, amazing professions. And uh, I was a terrible, terrible student. And when I was going, I decided I was going to go back to school and I had to get my transcripts and I got my transcripts from SMC where I went and I had gone on and off to community college for 12 years. It was so humiliating and embarrassing. I'm like, who the fuck goes to junior college for 12 years, this girl. But I decided I was going to go back to school and I was 48 and I went to a small liberal arts college here in Portland called Merrillhurst. And I had only one year to finish. So I was amazed at what a good student I was. It's like what you said, you know, thinking of yourself as this terrible student. But when I got into school as an adult, I realized how much I loved learning. And it was part of my midlife thing. I didn't know who I was, so I didn't have a next step. So I went back to school. But one of the reasons why I went back to school is because I wanted to teach. Now I'm in my master's program. I'm halfway through. I'm taking a creative writing MFA program. And I'll be able to teach. And my goal is to teach at community college and to work in underserved communities because that's such a tenuous, tender time when people are trying to find themselves. And I think when it comes to expression, any form, whether it's film or art or painting or writing, it's the thing that we need like air. We need it. We don't even realize it. And when you walked into that classroom and showed the kids the video camera and they're like, hey, we could do this, it just automatically clicks. And there's something about being seen, being understood, being part of something that changes the game. And I, I feel like in a classroom setting, whatever that means to you as a teacher, whatever you create, is such a powerful way to shift energy in this whole world and the whole community and it's so needed so absolutely yeah i you know i I agree i I think they're well you see a lot of people are starting to appreciate their teachers these days (laughs) now that they're all homeschooled yeah (laughs) like how do you do it oh my god well imagine having 20 imagine having 20 kindergartners you know unbelievable i have a i have several friends who are teachers and one of them works in a school district that's very poor, very underserved. And she has 34 kids in her class and they're what, fifth graders. That's stunning. Now you have that as a backdrop for whatever it is that you do, however you move forward in the world, you know something now about yourself that you're a good student and you're a good teacher. And like, those are two fantastic things in your album to go back and look at as I would call hits. (laughs) I think so. You know, they were really, uh, yeah. 
I would, uh, I would not trade in that experience for anything, you know, not for anything. And I am, a, I am a good teacher. You know, people, kids respond to me. I have a nice way with kids. What do they call you? Theater Bob. Yeah, they wanted me to do a musical theater program at the elementary school. And I said, these kids don't want to do musical theater. I said, let's make movies. And so they said, okay, go ahead and try it. So it was a really great program. Uh, you know, nice thing about it mm-hmm. is you're right. You know, everybody, want, everybody wants to be seen. You know, mm-hmm. everybody wants to be seen. And, and, and that's a medium that they understand. They understand video. And we would do fun things like make a video. I'd say, we'll make a, we're going to make a music video, okay? So I put on a little music and everybody be doing their thing and I'd film it. And then I'd show it to them without the music and they'd be like, mm-hmm. oh yeah. And you kind of show them how you can manipulate things, putting music in. It was really a, uh, it was just a great program, you know. I'm glad I did it. So then what about the music? Because I know that's been a huge part of your life. That has been a, a, a realm of continuity for you has been the music and I you have this music is it a band I mean what do you call it Papa's Kitchen is it like a duo or is it what is it considered well Papa's Kitchen is basically Steve Feldman and myself Mm -hmm. and let me see when I was getting divorced back in the year 2000 Steve and I decided we were going to get together twice a week every Tuesday and Friday and we were going to just play music it started out as therapy where we'd, you know, go to the studio. I'd play like a drum track one time and then he'd put down a guitar one time and then we always one take. And then we would spew out the shit of the week mm-hmm. that we had to deal with, whether it was your ex-wife or your job or whatever, you know, it was therapy. Mm-hmm. And then after, after a while, we just started writing real songs. Is it like rock? And I'd say it's acoustic rock. Yeah, because I listen. You know, our, mm-hmm. Yeah, our uh, our influences are like I say, the Beatles and the Beach Boys and Van Morrison and JJ Kale. And mm-hmm. you know, we have a kind of a I don't want to say Americana. I'd say more like acoustic rock kind of stuff. Okay. Anyway, we still get together. We have nine nine CDs now. The, the beauty of Papa's Kitchen is it's me and Steve. We can go out and play as a duo or we can go out and play as a band. And I have a few friends who will come and join us. So depending on the venue, we could be a band or we could just be me and Steve. But basically, Papa's Kitchen is me and Steve. What places did you play in L.A.? What what venues? Played a lot of places here. Smaller clubs like The Mint mm-hmm. and... Uh, Filthy McNasties. Well, is that what they still call it up there? <laughs> is that the one on Pico? I don't know. No, no. You know the one. It used to where where River Phoenix. Oh yeah, yeah, what yeah. Was yeah. That? Uh, right. The yeah, Viper Room. Yeah. Uh, the Viper Room. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, like wine gatherings and things like that. And you don't play out too much anymore. We used to play out quite a bit. The truth is, sometimes you're playing for nobody, and uh, it's very hard to get. To get people to, you know, if you're out, you go out and you play once or twice, you can get people to come out and see your show. <laughs> but if you're playing every night, if you're, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, well, I just saw them. And so uh, it got a little boring for us. And so we just decided in the last year, we've been 
writing in the studio. And then uh, um, one day a week we get together and we jam because the beauty of music to me and to Steve is how you keep getting better. I've been playing since I was eight years old and I'm still getting better. Drums. And it's amazing. Guitar, drums, right. piano. Anything. I play anything. I play anything and everything. And one thing feeds the other. Playing the piano, it starts to help the separation when you're playing the guitar or you're playing the drums. You know what I mean? You start to think with two brains. It's really, it, 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 music to me is, uh, that's the beauty of it. More than anything is that there's no end to what you can keep learning. That's awesome. I love that. And I, I feel that with my writing. I feel that right now in my in my writing life, I and I had a really great mentor in my uh, creative writing program that just really, I won't say pushed me, but opened me up. And to discover and find those voices or places within yourself that are informing you and giving you that expression where you, it's not like you creating it and trying to make it better. It's the thing that's coming to you and making you better because it's showing you something or teaching you something. And like, you're like wow, where did that come from? That was awesome. Like, you know, I feel like you can get, I don't know if the word's better, but you get deeper, you get more intimate with it. You get a deeper understanding of it and it becomes something that is, uh, inspiring and illuminating and teaches you something about yourself because it's a process. You're engaged in the process. It is not about the product. It's about what you're engaged in in that moment. And it's unbelievable. Hmm. Love it. Yeah. I, I admire writers. I don't know how you guys do it. You know, well, it's the same thing with writing music. A song. <laughs> <clears throat> no, writing a three minute song is a lot different than writing a book. Or writing a screenplay, you know, I mean, uh, it's a uh, sure it's, a, you know, it got your beginning, middle and an end to it. But it, it goes by pretty quick. Not like a book. I don't know how you do it, honestly. Well, I've tried. I can't. I would say it's if there's expectations as roadblocks in the initial way of being with it, then then no matter what it is, you're not going to be able to see it your way through it. But if you use it as a way to engage I mean, that's what I did. It was only to have a conversation with myself because I was pretty fucked up and alone and felt isolated, even though I was married and had kids and everything. I mean, when you use any art form as a as a way of expressing and connecting, then it then it can open you up if you don't say shit on it. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I call it the parade shitters. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's that's true. You know, whatever, whatever. I mean, music, you can get the same the same, uh, you know, experience in in writing a song. But there's something about writers. I I think they're kind of born. I think you're born to write and you enjoy sitting by yourself for two or three hours in the morning or whatever you write, you know, and that's your time. And and you're disciplined to do that. That's not, not everybody can do that. I think you're kind of born to that. And, and I would say I didn't even want to call myself a writer until like two years ago. And I teach people that anybody can write and you should. And if you say to me that I've always thought about it or I want to do it, I would say you should and you can. 
and I would be a teacher and I would show you how, like, that's my passion. That's what I would want to bring out because I'm guessing, what would you want to write about? I think that's part of the problem is that I don't know what I would want to write about. I, uh, (laughs) it's the same, you know, well, my songwriting partner, Steve, he'll write 12 songs for every one that I write. And if I write a song, it's because it's something's been boiling up in me, bubbling up in me that I cannot deal with. I can't live with it. And so I have to express it. And so I put it into words. And sometimes it's just, you know, an outright confession that needs to be whittled and worked on. That's how I write. It's something that that it hits me and it's like, God damn it. And it doesn't come often. So uh, honestly, I don't really know what I would write about. I think that's part of my problem. Something that's interesting is that I learned about this format that I had to work on. It's called autofiction. And basically what it does is that you can take things that have happened in your life and you can write anything you want about those things. They don't have to be factual, but there are seeds of ideas. So could have been time growing up in Connecticut. It could have been uh, working at, as a busboy that sings at Shakey's. It could be uh, getting ripped off at a Howard Johnson's. It could be walking onto a set for the first time. It could be walking into a classroom and looking at a bunch of angry faces. There's probably so many moments in your life that could be taken and explored and they don't have to be perfect or right. You know, there's just seeds. And and the, the idea of it is, I will use the analogy of being in a classroom because I love the symbiotic relationship between a teacher and a student. And then in the writing scenario, you're both, you're your best teacher and your best student. So you know how sometimes when you're in that setting and you're learning and take preschool, even a preschool classroom, how you just present something as an idea and, you know, you watch it open up. You're that same three-year-old on the rug waiting to see the juice box. And you're also the teacher who's there that's there to present it. Like it's the most amazing thing when you can start to get into the conversation with yourself in a way that makes room for both. I've seen it. I've seen this people I've worked with and the students I've worked with. And I, I'm convinced hundred percent that you're a writer. Well, you sure could be right. <laughs> it could be right. You know, uh, and I, maybe with a little, with a little guidance, maybe I could get through something, you know, but. I teach a free online writing workshop on uh, once a week and it's just two hours. And if you ever want to just hop on, it's no, no strings. I mean, what I do is people come in, they come off and it's just a way to, I offer guided writing prompts and the people that have been in there have been super interesting and have had all kinds of amazing breakthroughs. Like it's been so cool to watch, but Anyway, and that's something I can I send you a link. You can come on or not, but it's an open invitation because right, I feel like it's something that's uh, a huge doorway that can provide insight and uh, awareness that you never knew was possible. All right. So uh, with all of these things that we've talked about, is there anything right now that you dream about or look forward to uh, discovering or exploring or what's keeping you inspired right now? Well, I'll tell you, it's, uh, it's hard right now. I, I, I've now been 80, almost 80 days isolated. You know what I mean? And I'm by myself. It's, uh, yes. So uh, I thought that this would be a good time to be motivated to write or play music or something. But I find that 
I find that it's not for me. I'm not inspired to create. So I go out in my yard and I mm-hmm. tear down trees and I, and I break <laughs> out my gardens and I paint the kitchen and I paint, you know what I mean? I'm doing physical things around the house because for some reason, I mean, I have worked on a couple of songs with Steve. We, we email tracks back and forth. We can do that, but mostly it's his, you know, his song. He'll send it to me to put some tracks on it. I'm just not feeling that creative at the moment, you know? Not many people are. It's a weird fucking time. Yeah, I think I'm not alone in that. And a lot of people I talk to, they say, you know, the same thing. I I thought, you know, this would be the perfect time to write my book or the perfect time to write that album I want to write or, but it's not, it's not coming out. It's not manifesting itself in that way. For me, it's manifesting itself in physical work because that's exhausting me. And uh, that's how I'm kind of getting through this, you know. Well, there's a highly, highly uncertain and highly, uh, never, never have we been here before. We don't know what to make of it. There's too many, too many unknowns. And the grief waves that keep coming of all the things we're losing the moments we were supposed to have with our friends, the weddings, the bar mitzvahs, the uh, spring break vacations. Graduations, everything, sure. Going out to drinks with margaritas and French fries. You know, that stuff is just not happening right now, but it it will come back. It will be different. I mean, everybody's like, I can't wait to get back to normal. I'm like, we're not going back to anything where everything is different. So just. Yeah, I agree. Gonna be a little, and uh, yeah, just hanging, taking it day to day. What else are you gonna do, right? You take it day to day. Hope that sooner or later they figure this weirdness out. It'll happen. I'm I sure it, it will. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it will. You know, I. Uh, it's a. I think also the news. I think is very depressing. Don't do it. The whole thing of you know the whole racism, all that stuff is just. It's just so sad, you know. So don't don't watch it. Don't I, do I, it. I try not to. <laughs> I try not don't to, do it. No. Put the kibosh. Put the kibosh. Just check in for five minutes. And you know, one thing I'm gonna just say and suggest, and I tell this to all my listeners and to anybody who knows me and to all my friends, I'd say the first three weeks of this, I was really down, just way down and depressed and feeling pretty weird. And I forced myself every day to go and take a walk because I just didn't want to sit looking at the walls, climbing the walls. And what it did was it gave me an opening and appreciation for like the most mundane things in the world. And I noticed this woman on her knees praying. She was weeding her garden. And I looked at her, I'm like, what is she up to? And she was just weeding her garden. And I realized that it was such a mundane thing, but she was so reverent in it. And I believe that the mundane things will save us. So the four things that I told myself I needed to keep myself tethered to (laughs) from going off into la-la land was I would walk, I would read, I would learn something, and I would write. And for me, those were four things that were free and I could rely on myself. I didn't need anybody And so I tell people all the time, just find one or two or three things that are very basic and rudimentary that you can do that will keep you tethered because it's super important to cultivate that added layer of self-care right now because the world can bring us down if we let it. (laughs) (laughs) That's the truth right there. 
Uh, you know, I mean, not, it's not to say there's not a little added support of wine or other things going on to help. But, you know, as long as we take care of the, the basics, it can be, it can be uh, simple. You don't have to do big grand things. You don't have to write the book. You don't have to no. compose the thing. It's just, you know, whatever you need to do to get you through, just get through. That's how I see it. One day at a time. One, yep. day at, one day I'll just lay in bed all day. The next day I'll get up and I'll rake out a whole garden. You know, I mean, it's just whatever I got to do to get through the day until something, some semblance of normalcy comes back, whatever that may be. Well, this today was like a huge gift to me. I was actually a little nervous to talk to you because I'm not really that nervous when I talk to people. I've talked to a lot of different people, but I just think the depth of the impression that seared in my mind of that time and that movie and just the whole thing. I really appreciate that you have made an impact to to so many people. And not just because of that, even the kids that you've taught, the preschoolers you've taught, the kids you've taught and, you know, being there for your, your own children in their school, like that, that is really an amazing and beautiful thing. And I'm so grateful we had a chance to connect and it was, it's been a lot of fun. Do you go by Bob or Bobby or? Bob's good. Bob. Okay. Bob or Bobby. Um, yeah. Is there anything you would like to add about anything before we close? Just uh, everybody hang in there. Right. Hang in there. We're all in the same boat, you know, so just hang in there and uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll get through all this, right? We are. We will. We are in the midst of it. We're getting through it. We're already seeing promising pieces of another side. I'm sure of it. All right, pal. Thanks so much for listening to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. It's been a real honor. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, share it with someone you think is in need. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions or comments or would like to connect with me about one-on-one midlife coaching or to purchase the book, Me, My Selfie, and I, a midlife conversation about lost identity, grief, and seeing who you are, visit www.janalopez.com. Lastly, if and when you should have a moment of doubt, because we all do, in the middle of the midlife transitions and changes, remember that seeing is relieving.